Hello and welcome to News of the World, the program that looks at news from around the world. I like to talk as if I'm reading off of a piece of paper. I am part of your hosts. Is that... How's that for English? Mark Fonseca Tendero, also known as Bicycle Mark, and I'm coming to you from the temporarily sunny city of Amsterdam. And on the other side of these wires, there is a young man by the name of Tim Pritlove in the possibly sunny city of Berlin. Uh, you can't uh, see outside, can you? You've got that whole place <laughs> barricaded. <laughs> yeah, not so much sun, but uh, <laughs> otherwise it's, uh, it's fine. You know, okay. I'm so I'm I'm the guy who never wants to sound as if he's reading from a piece of paper, yeah. even if I'm reading from a piece of paper. Yes, yes, you, or a website. Your, your office still has a slight view of the outside, so you can tell the weather. Yes, yes, I'm connected to the outside world, which is Before we very important. You know, when you want to receive the news, when you want yes. to when you want to feel it, because that's oh, that's wow. that's what this program is about. It's not Feel just about talking. It's about feeling, feeling it. Wow. Yes. That's it. I mean, I knew that. I don't mean to be so surprised. I, yeah. yeah, but so, that's your, the role you play. You, you, you play the surprised guy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I am so surprised about this list of news this week, and I want to share it with you all. So we can start with, first of all, there needs to be an update because last week we had the big typhoon that hit the Philippines and you can't leave it at that with something this big. Uh, have you, I've seen lots. Have you, have you found out how the US news is actually pronouncing it now? No, no, I actually haven't. Um, okay. Maybe I was listening to Democracy Now. That's kind of like US news. And I think they say Haiyan. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I think I might have watched... No, that was the BBC. I'm going with Haiyan, and that's, that's just how I'm going to continue until someone stops me, until I get a court order. But so the typhoon, the typhoon, uh, the death toll, uh, not to start with the darkest aspect of all this, but uh, 4,000 people at this point. Uh, of course, the relief effort is ongoing. I was, in, I was actually in Belgium a few days ago, and there were lots of stories coming from Belgium rescue teams, and of course, many international rescue teams are there. Uh, they're talking 4.4 million people uh, displaced at this point. And uh, the comparison that was used in the, uh, the raw story where I was picking up this particular article is that that's actually twice the amount of people that lost their homes after the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which is kind of hard to believe because the Indian Ocean tsunami hit so many different countries. Yes. Uh, but, you know, the Philippines has a lot of people and, well, this, this was a big storm. Um, so I've heard some discussion about the amount of damage, of course. Economists and others want to talk about it in those sense or that, those terms. So they're talking like somewhere between yeah, $6 billion and maybe double that amount. Um, one thing I noticed, which is of interest, I think, for as we look to the future and the near future, they're saying that on the good side, if we can even say on the good side, the storm hit mostly the agricultural regions. So when it comes to, you know, places where a lot of people live or um, if you want to get into <laughs> economics and production and factories, that's not as affected. But what is affected is food. And that's actually quite scary. So you could see food prices uh, jumping, at least the food that's, of course, coming from uh, domestic production. 
I can imagine that with the relief effort, there's a lot of food coming from outside, so maybe that will balance it. But as we know, in the aftermath of big uh, storms and disasters, food prices can always and do seem to always uh, jump. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this is, again, this is called a natural disaster, but uh, a big part in this disaster uh, is also non-natural. It's man-made and it's just the the fact that the population in the Philippines has gone up to what is it now 68 uh, a million uh from just a few million uh a few decades ago and while 90% of the Philippines were covered by woods it's has come down to i don't know the exact number but it's not that much anymore so most of the woods are gone and also uh there's a big toll on the coral reefs that uh, used to protect the um the 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 coastline so the natural resistance that the the country of the philippines could have pushed against this storm you know is mostly gone and that's also why so if it's now the agrarian infrastructure that has you know uh, suffered the most it might have been that very infrastructure in the first place that you know caused the the, the problems to rise hmm yeah there's there's been this discussion uh, similar to what you're talking about about the biodiversity the rainforests of the of the islands of the philippines and and how they were able or not able to deal with i mean such such match of destruction and also what's been going on over the years when it comes to yeah development um yeah so uh, you know the the relief effort is going to continue i don't know that we're going to have stories on it every week here on news of the world but for sure um it's one of these issues that's gonna it's gonna last for a very long time and I think there should be, you know, I hope for, for more stories, I will dig around and find uh, updates from that country because, you know, just because the storm has passed doesn't mean recovery isn't uh, worth knowing about and following and maybe playing a different role in, you know, the international community has to stay engaged. For sure, there's going to be stuff like money raising and who donates what. So this is going to be ongoing. And actually what you mentioned about, you know, the the human element or the you know, the element of development and destruction of natural ecosystem kind of leads into our next story, which is, uh, as, as mentioned uh, last week, the UN Climate Conference is going on in Poland. I think it's just about ended. It would have been, well, it's this week, so maybe they're still going. But uh, I saw one of the latest headlines, I think yesterday, 133 nations walked out, at least of a part of the, the climate conference that's, that's been taking place in Poland. The group is called the G77 plus China. It's very confusing because the group is called G77, but the, the headline is 133 nations. I guess others joined. The big issue that caused them to walk out is this, they call it damage and loss, uh, the question of damage and loss. So in other words, the classic breaking point or debate in climate change discussions for international agreements is you have the, let's call them developed nations, we know who we're talking about, the big guys, the wealthy, who have been polluting and 
to some extent causing uh, some some climate change if we accept uh, science. Um, and then you have the nations who are developing, who are still catching up. Some uh, hope to be able to produce some some pollution, or at least hope to develop. And the frustration here is that a lot of these nations, these 133, think that the nations, the wealthy nations, developed nations, should pay something in the in the bigger scheme. They should have a bigger responsibility. There should be some kind of uh, acknowledging that they've done damage. And of course, these nations have a big influence. The, the, the dominant nations have a big influence over the meeting. So they've said they're going to delay any discussion about this. And that delay, that putting it aside, is what really has angered these nations. And they walked out uh, on the conference just to show their sort of uh, disagreement with this hall. Um, and there's been some other things going on with the climate conference. Uh, first of all, Poland being the setting, there's also a conference on coal energy going on apparently nearby. And a lot of people are <clears throat> quite annoyed and see this as, you know, the Polish government and, and any participants um, as really pretending that they care about climate change and, and the future of the environment. Meanwhile, you know, Poland is a big coal producer. The country itself, I think, is more than 80 percent coal powered. Um, and so you've had this whole discussion of like, how can, how can this be, you know, what's going on? So there's been a lot of protests in general. Uh, apparently the prime minister fired the environment minister. I guess that's what you do when you look a little bit embarrassed, but <laughs> apparently they're doing lots of cabinet shuffling because he also fired, uh, several other cabinet members, but it's interesting that the headline is, you know, environment ministered fired by, by the Polish uh, prime minister. So, uh, you know, this conference has not gone well. Um, yeah. And I think that there have been climate conferences that have, have at least successfully produced some new agreements. I mean, we know these names, you know, Montreal, Rio, some of these places actually produce agreements that, that have an impact that are remembered. I don't think this is one of them. Yeah. So in the end, again, nothing has really come out of this conference, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not that anybody has any uh, expectations left at this point uh, this is mo for my part this is mostly based on the headlines of this week maybe it takes a few days before some of the underreported information um you know maybe something does come out of this but but from right now from the way the media is reporting on it and the protesters in the streets and and, and elsewhere in the conference actually um no i think nothing has really come of this and and part of it is you know the the inability for people who have in this case nations that have different priorities uh unable to sort of meet in the middle somewhere uh so you know. yeah I, i i i start to think that that we really need to wait for the destruction of new york before anything is going <laughs> to happen uh as as butros butros gali once said to me uh it will be too late by that point and yes. there will be no saving any other city you know but but i hear what you're saying i mean the only time a lot of uh, people and nations really take action, take new action, is when something bad happens. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But meanwhile, there's been this other item, uh, which I find to be quite underreported. Although when you Google it, Somalia, Cyclone, you do find that mainstream and non-mainstream media have covered it, but somehow it doesn't in whatever news programs, uh, on TV, on radio, you don't really hear about Somalia having been slammed by a cyclone, uh, actually more than a week ago, around the time of uh, Haiyan. 
And, uh, there, you know, the death toll isn't as large as the Philippines, but the amount of people displaced is, is, is extensive. And, the, of course, the difficulty is getting accurate information from Somalia, getting international rescue teams to care. It's a, it's a really tricky thing. So we've got about 300 people dead, and this is in the Somaliland region. Uh, interestingly, Puntland is another one. I don't know my, my geography of Somalia, to be honest, and I don't have it in front of me, but Puntland actually is on the tip of the Horn of Africa, so a more high-profile area there that you see on the map, and it actually has its own government, which makes sense considering that the central government of Somalia uh, has come and gone and doesn't actually have um, in, uh, reign or, or what is it, power over the whole country. So they have their own government and they're struggling in that context to deal with people who have been displaced. Oh, one fact that I think makes a big difference in the lives of Somalis in general, you have 100,000 livestock, animals, that died. And it's like, well, you don't usually get the numbers of animals that died in a yeah. natural disaster. <laughs> but, you know, when they're your goat and your goat is your source for whether it's milk or meat, uh, that's, that's a lot of uh, food or would have been food. So they've got uh, an international rescue mission going on there. Mostly it's locally or regionally handled. Ethiopia has uh, sent uh, supplies, at least, hopefully teams. Um, Djibouti has gotten involved as well. And it's just really a regional thing. I mean, the world, in this case, is answering the, 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 the cry from the Philippines. And considering the scale of it, it's understood. But the world never really jumps when anything happens in Somalia anymore. Uh, you know, maybe since the 90s. Yeah, not even the news organizations. No, right. I got this one off of uh, some pretty light uh, Africa-based tabloids and uh, all Africa covered it. But even those articles are quite thin. And of course, it is hard to get a reporter into Somalia. I mean, if we're going to keep comparing getting a reporter to the Philippines, getting a reporter into Somalia, it's a much harder thing in Somalia. Yeah, true. So, And that's also kind of scary because... In this case, death toll, the amount of people that are displaced, which is in the thousands, how accurate is it? Is it worse, actually, but we don't have anyone that can tell us? Yeah, I think this is really just the tip of the iceberg, probably. But yeah. it's interesting to see that these um, huge storms not only take place in the, well, quote-unquote, traditional <laughs> areas, right. but also uh, at uh, the, the cup that's yeah. not the what's the sorry it's not the cup it's the uh, horn what, of africa is it the horn i think it is yes yeah yeah, yeah and and not you know not that far from the the bottom tip of uh, of what we call the middle east so it's it's all yeah there is no region of the world that's not really going to be affected or being affected by these large national yeah, disasters no, no, but just, nobody is spared no no and and yeah, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey, and I used to always look at the rest of the United States, and you had Florida with hurricanes, California with fires, and I used to think like, wow, well, our area is somehow magically never hit, <laughs> and now that I'm an adult, I see like, oh no, yeah, the New Jersey's hit by hurricanes, and they're going to destroy the coast, and... Yeah, it was yeah. just hit twice, wasn't it? And, uh, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. pretty much, yeah, and uh, and getting stronger and stronger, so again, we kind of links to climate change... Uh, climate conference it's all linked yeah and let's stick with uh, the environment actually we got uh i we haven't really covered this a lot on news of the world and i think part of the problem is my own crappy attention span many people know especially here in europe uh you had the 30 
Greenpeace activists that were arrested in connection with the um, activity in the Arctic. Uh, let's see. This was, what, September when um, the Arctic Sunrise, which is an icebreaker from Greenpeace, uh, it, it went to the, let's see, the Gazprom-owned Prerazlomanaya oil platform. I should have asked for help to pronounce that. <laughs> You're doing well. Oh, okay. And, uh, I mean, this has been big news. Like, here in the Netherlands, there, after they were arrested, there were even billboards, I think, by Amnesty International uh, with the faces of some of the activists and, you know, saying, like, they shouldn't have been arrested. They're going to face trial. Some of them are going to face trial for what's being called hooliganism. I heard it reported as piracy, uh, <laughs> which is a funny charge. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, they just so, come up with something. <laughs> you're a hooligan and a pirate. You have two different costumes on. You know, like an eye patch and a soccer jersey. Something like that. Um, <laughs> but so, out of the 30 that were originally arrested, 20 have been released. So this is slowly, every few days, you get a little bit of a headline. Oh, a Canadian was released. Oh, a, a Belgian or whatever. But um, there's still 10 being held. And apparently, the most of the original people are... Um, well, most at least 10, <laughs> facing seven years in jail. Um, and then in a response to all this, the Netherlands, uh, the government, has now filed a lawsuit against Russia in the, here's one you don't hear very often, the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea. Mm-hmm. I know that's, that's one of my favorite courts where I go for hot action. Um, they're <laughs> suing for wrongful, let's see, wrongful detention, basically that the Russian Coast Guard uh, couldn't and, well, shouldn't have done what they what they did. It's illegal somehow, according to the laws of the sea. And um, so there's, a, there's this lawsuit going on. And meanwhile, there's all these little details of uh, Russia, Netherlands, uh, what do you call it, relations that are actually kind of, for the first time in a long time, kind of in trouble. Uh, although the king and queen were just there from the Netherlands, <laughs> and they seem to be very well received until someone threw tomatoes. But so, so why is the Netherlands so involved? The Arctic Sunrise, the ship is registered in, uh, the, in Netherlands? the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and you know the the Greenpeace International is based in the Netherlands. Of course, Greenpeace has its local chapters in every country, but the international organization is Dutch. And yeah, the ships are are indeed uh, Dutch. So that's part of it. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah, they and have been campaigning all over the world, like the the Arctic Thirty. So yeah. now now it's down to uh, ten. Ten. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is not over, and I I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, it's obvious that that Russia just wants to send a message to you know whoever. It's like yeah, don't don't mess with us, and you know we're just doing what we think is good for us, and and we don't care about you and if you think you have to you know come up every time and uh annoy us you know we're, we're just coming up with new laws as long uh, as you know as it takes to 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 make you go away that that's basically the message here uh, and i don't think they even have to send them all on uh in jail in the end you know it's just this energy they put into retaining them you know and causing uh, troubles in the long run i don't know is this uh, a massing of, of of bad news that that russia is generating in the last <laughs> years is going to be helpful in the long run but you know the rest of the world is corrupt enough so that you know have their own just have to uh, 
focus on their own business. Yeah, yes. And, yeah, and Ru really Russia being strong with all the energy supply they can provide, it's, yeah, it's a mess. And, 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 For people who haven't followed this story, the oil platform itself hasn't actually produced any oil yet. That's supposed to happen, I think, in December. Mm -hmm. um, right now, they've just, just been doing these tests, and part of the claim by not just Greenpeace, lots of people over the last few years, I mean, I did that talk years ago about the Arctic battle for, for control over the resources. The argument is that the company can't handle it if there's ever a spill. And, uh, you know, we know... <laughs> even in places more easier than the Arctic in terms of environment that companies usually can't handle these massive... Yeah, spills. and the Arctic can't handle it as well. That's the, yeah. main, the main problem. It's not uh, the warm area where bacteria is, uh, you know, having a, a field day with, with the oil spill and just, you know, not from one day to the other, but somehow over a, a rather small amount of time has a fair chance of you know getting getting to deal with it but in the arctic that's not going to happen it's uh, too cold and this will be a, a huge disaster yeah now i'm not totally sure about this and uh, basically i'll leave this to the comments but you know the discussion was about parts of the arctic that aren't officially aren't um The, the the land, the territory of any country. Of course, there's all these arguments about why they should be. Or um, What I can't figure out is if this particular platform is already in one of those regions, but I don't think so. I mean, the, the, the sea is called the Pecora Sea, and it's 60 km kilometers from the Russian coast. So I'm guessing that this is not one of those um, future concerns when it comes to, like, places that aren't actually Russia, but Russia is saying this is us, or Canada is saying this is us. Um, But I'm really not sure. I'm wondering if this is already one of those places. Tell us, comments. Write it in. Or I'll yes. keep doing the research and I'll write it in the comments. <laughs> yeah. It'd be amazing if it already was, but I think it's a little too early. Okay. Different thing. Now, not so much environment, but humanity and a place that we occasionally get updates from, and that's the Congo. Uh, I came across this article twice, or different versions of it. Uh, one was in Der Spiegel. Uh, international and the other was in the Washington Post. Um, we all probably remember that there's this UN peacekeeping mission in Congo. Uh, it's called MONUSCO, M O N U S C O. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember them as being legendary for kind of being caught in the middle when these, like, uh, the rebels, I forget what number they used, uh, M23 or something like that, when they suddenly seized a region. We reported about it here on News of the World. Um, you know, I knew them as a sort of, I'm going to call them weak, but, you know, stuck in a very difficult situation. Well, apparently, and that's what these articles are focusing on, um, they've got a new mandate that allows them to be more aggressive. And that's probably been going on longer than I, you know, for quite a while. It's just now I, I notice it with these, the way they're being written about. So apparently it's, the mission now is being head by uh, a German, in fact, a guy by the name of Martin Kobler. He's 60 years old. He's listed as a you know, career diplomat, um, Palestine, Cairo, Baghdad, well, New Delhi. And uh, he's, he's even being called, you know, this pacifist, former friend um, of Joschka Fischer. He's, he's chief of staff, apparently, for when he was in the German military. And uh, he's leading this mission where they're suddenly taking offensive actions, uh, helping support the government, the military, and apparently doing 
pretty well when it comes to being able to protect uh, some regions of the country. You also have this Brazilian general, Carlos uh, Santos da Cruz, or Santos Cruz, who before this was in Haiti, dealing with um, the street gangs when the UN mission went there uh, between 07 and 09. So he's, um, you know, these two are being listed as these key figures leading this force that also consists of Tanzanians, um, South Africans, and Malawian soldiers. And they're, they're taking a whole different approach to peacekeeping, uh, which has been one of those complaints for a long time that, you know, peacekeepers so often are kind of, they're there, they've got some equipment, they've got training, but they're not allowed to fire a shot or they're not allowed to, if they know about some, you know, a, a, a group of criminals, uh, paramilitary, they're not really allowed to go get them. Uh, and now that's quite different. And some people think this is sort of the future of, it seems silly to call it peacekeeping, but it's kind of like, yeah, getting peace through force. And it's controversial, obviously, um, but it's, it, these articles are really interesting. <laughs> it's almost written about in a kind of like superhero kind of Hollywood way, which is probably a bad sign because that's kind of a manipulation. Uh, <laughs> but they're, they're worth reading. I'm going to link to the Der Spiegel one. Uh, the title is even German pacifist leads UN force in Congo, <laughs> which sounds like a film, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's definitely got some media appeal to write these features where it's like, you wouldn't believe the guy that's leading this successful military force in the Congo. He used to be a Green Party guy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's been close to uh, Joschka Fischer and... Also, Joschka is very famous for, you know, being uh, part of this uh, groundbreaking movement, the Greens, you know, which yeah. was pacifist dominated and, and, you know, sort of when he got into power and was German foreign minister, he was the, 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 the main force behind the idea of intervening in Yugoslavia, which they mm-hmm. uh, then eventually did. And he, you know, sort of broke up with the party over this and other things he's uh, seen by many uh, hardcore pacifists in the um in the in the party as somebody sort of broke you know the green law of you know not being involved in uh in wars but he was saying like yeah you know look at germany itself you know nobody could have stopped us without using force when uh, the nazi regime was devastating europe hmm. and uh lesson learned you know we probably have to uh use force and because uh, there was no real clear un mandate also in in this Kosovo case you know he took a hard hit but he was always convinced that this was uh, the right way to to go yeah so i'm not well, so surprised to see somebody who was sort of uh in his vicinity all the time, you know, taking the same position here. The, the big risk, I mean, there's, there's a lot of risks, but one of the big risks for the UN and peacekeeping is who are you helping? You know, you could say, well, our, our mission is to help humans. So if there's people who are not able to defend themselves and there's a crazy force, a paramilitary, whatever, we will defend them. We will find the paramilitary, I guess, now for more aggressive. But the tricky part is, in this case, for example... You're going to support the military of the Republic of Congo. Why? Well, because it's a democracy, because hopefully they're a military that isn't out to uh, hurt their own citizens. So you want to you, you make sure you're kind of on the, the right side. And then the question becomes like, 
how are you going to be sure you're on the right side? No, but uh, even not fighting means you're sort of supporting uh, one or the other group. So if you get involved, you get involved uh, totally independent of what you do. The question is like, is force allowed or isn't it? You know, is is means does peacekeeping mean that all your soldiers have to <laughs> keep their peace all the time? You know, or right. uh, should they act as uh, as soldiers? Yeah. Well, and and it it does do something in this whole context of countries that take actions uh, hurting their own citizens, hurting neighboring countries, and go, eh, the UN isn't going to do anything. You know, if they deploy the UN, it's, it's mm -hmm. usually considered not a, not a danger that won't stop them. And if you suddenly have the threat, like, no, actually, the UN, you know, they'll, they're really tough. Uh, th this could, I don't know, I almost say this could scare some, some governments from doing evil Did you yeah, i you mean said? why why is the u.s seen as the primary force because they are willing to use their force it's yeah. not all about money it's also about military presence and their willingness to to to, to get involved mm -hmm. oh. so uh highly recommended reading and i'm going to keep an eye out now for these names uh carlos cruz and martin kobler i'm kind of interested i would i would read a small book about these guys small Uh, all right, so now to uh, this week's news source. news source. Yeah, yeah. And since I mentioned the Netherlands uh, suing the Russian government, I ended up at a source that I've been using probably since I started blogging. It's called Jurist. And uh, it's a legal blog, although we all don't use the word blog anymore because we're so modern. Um, but it's a website that covers <laughs> legal cases all over the world. I mean, it's not, you know, it's from the University of Pittsburgh, the law uh -huh. school there, but their specialty is global. So it's really great if there's any case going on, um, you know, especially governments, companies, uh, large stuff. They not only have sort of background information, but they do provide a lot of links. So links to the original documents if they're online, links to articles that explain some of the cases or the, the claims from either side. It's a really comprehensive site. And it's actually, it was started by a law professor in 96, I think. So it's, it's now mm -hmm. uh, one of those older sources on the internet. And uh, it's mostly, um, the content is from law students And there is some money from it from the university, and otherwise they're looking for donations. I think they're doing a campaign now uh, that they hit their 15-year uh, anniversary, and they, you know, they're asking for another 15 years. 17. So, 17. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, and so the jurist is great. Also, like I, it was one of those feeds that I would always have in my feed reader because um, usually the articles are just a paragraph, but that paragraph will have all the basic information everybody involved, and so many links that you could actually use and build on if you want to learn about um, a court case, a conflict, actually. So Jurist is one of those specialty websites that I think is really handy for any journalist or law student uh, who's interested in the world. So there's a slight U.S. focus here, but it's covering the world. Yeah, I mean, those are my favorite parts, but you're, you're right, you know, there would be. And also there's a bias towards... Uh, cases that have any kind of internet presence. Oh, so, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if your court system is mostly paper, uh, you won't see much on Jurist. But mm -hmm. we're, we're getting to that point where a lot of, uh, I mean, yeah, legal systems have some kind of 
web presence, even if it's a newspaper reporting on a case. So highly recommended uh, for your everyday world-following resources. Would be interesting if they could provide a map, you know, where you could just say, like, give me Ah. the reports on this area, you know. Not only uh, topic-wise, but also geography-wise that you can actually zoom in on, you know, reports from certain areas. Um, I wonder... Don't see that here. Maybe it's hidden somewhere deep in the links. I don't know. I wonder if using keywords and all the posts over the years that some uh, brave programmer out there couldn't build such a system. Uh, well, yeah, it might be uh, possible, but they usually name the courts who have made any kind of decisions, and it's rather easy to you know pin them to, to a map. Yeah. Maybe I'll write to them. Say, I don't have a donation for you right now, but here's an idea. <laughs> yeah, I have some geo-coordinates to share. Yeah. Okay. I have some knowledge donation. I like those. Jurist, our yeah. tip this week. Yes. And that brings us to the end of our news and our news source for this week. Uh, I wanted to mention last week we said that the My Dubai Taxi project was up on Kickstarter. Well, last night I hit the goal and I want to thank everybody who helped Great. make it possible. Uh, I saw lots of names who I think are uh, News of the World listeners. Mm-hmm. And I saw that in the traffic, although I don't like to look at stats too much, but I saw that there were a number of people that came over directly from our link on the website. So I hit it, and I'm two weeks early, which is good. It means I can book my flight, and I can move forward uh, knowing comfortably that I can go. And now I'm kind of looking at whatever whatever happens now is bonus. So I'm looking at microphones that I have and going, could I upgrade this? You know, is this the best one for the mission if I have a little more money? And uh, I'm also looking into publishing, actually. Uh, I want to publish, I don't want to make it a book, but a, a short book, like an ebook, with uh, where the audio will be playable, where I can have photos of the people I'm talking about or the places. I want to make a, an interactive book. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping to get help from a publisher, but if I can't get it, then I'll publish it myself. I have to really learn the ebook world. I've got about two months to uh to prepare well at least to start preparing because i could also publish the book once i'm back from the <laughs> the project yeah interesting and while you're in dubai i mean i i think there will be also some dubai related or arab world related topics that we could cover they will how long are yep. you planning to be there now uh, a little over two weeks, maybe three weeks, depending on how bonus uh, fundraising goes. Okay, so this could make for one or two bonus News of the World shows that uh, is looking at Dubai and yep. and the crazy world that they have uh, <laughs> yes. created there in the last years. Yeah, yeah. How crazy and, it is. And then you've got lots of topics, international meetings that tend to go take place there. So yeah, yeah, there'll be lots of stories, I think. Uh, so yeah big thank you to everyone and of course thanks to everyone for listening to this fine program and the flattering uh, thank you very much Uh, no matter where I go I always talk about flatter and news of the world and people are just like oh yeah starting to get it and I know they've been getting it for much longer in in Germany but you know we want the rest of the world to also wake up true yeah yeah okay thanks everybody thanks for listening Next, Next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.